Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Let us pray. Lord, as with these other commandments, we know what the words say. We memorize them. And Lord, many even in the world know these things. But Lord, we do not keep them in their fullness and we are not aware of all the implications and the further reaches of this commandment. And we pray, Lord, that you would educate us, that you would teach us, that truly the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, as we were reminded this morning. Truly, Lord, we desperately need to have our eyes opened to receive the truth of these things that we might repent. And indeed, for some to believe in Christ and for the rest of us to, to run to Christ and to his law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And we carry on into the second table of the law, having to do with how we love our neighbor. And as we mentioned, that the, the heart of the this second table of the law has to do with is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's the most direct attack on someone else denying or trying to get rid of their existence. But the next commandment has to do with the means of life. How does life happen in the first place? Well, thou shalt not commit adultery. That is because new life comes from the union of man and wife, and that institution and everything surrounding it are of supreme importance to the living God. Now, let me say again, he cares not only about the ends, but about the means. And we have to get used to that idea. That's the regulative principle writ large over everything. God cares not only about the end result, but how it happens. And so it is that he cares about how new life comes. He has a plan for it in marriage. And he puts a hedge of protection around it. When this happens... When there's a union of one man and one woman joined in marriage and that life is perpetuated because of it, just as he is designed, well, then everything else works. You don't need the vast array of social workers and all the sorts of things in the welfare state. When you have the father providing for and governing and you have the mothers caring for and nurturing their children, that's, that's, that works perfectly well, actually and better than any alternative that could be imagined. And this is also the primary way in which he not only perpetuates life, but perpetuates the true religion. You you understand it is a mercy of God to extend that out in the, the work of calling the Gentiles, calling those who are outside the covenant. That's a wonderful extension. But the plan A, as it were, the the primary means that has always been from the very beginning for the extension and the perpetuation of the church is it through the covenant nurture of, of God's people. As one generation goes to the next, and they're brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and so the religion carries on, God's own true religion. No wonder he wants to protect it. The great ends of which he, came, he, he designed from the very beginning, both naturally and spiritually, both of these things happen in the context of marriage. Now, of course, this commandment, more than perhaps any other, is in attack, under attack in our day. Uh, I don't need to tell you that. You know it. All the, the issues uh, have something to do with this. Perversions that were a few years ago punishable by law are lauded and lionized as if they were the greatest thing. And those who would even object to them are sometimes themselves punished. Well, these are, this is symptomatic of a, of a society that has lost its moorings. We have to understand that. And young people, you have to particularly understand that. You don't grow up in a situation that has it together. All right? This, I don't know if any society has completely had it together. But if there's ever been a society that doesn't have it together with anything having to do with marriage and, and men and women and all the rest of these things, they, our society does not. All right? And we we need to understand that. So we can't at all look to the world to have any clue of what these things should look like. We have to look only to God's word. 
But it's not just the young people, it's all of us. Because if all we hear from the culture day and night is, are the lies, we must be reminded all the more of the truth. We don't have to live in such darkness. We have the light of God's word. And we should look at it all the more. Now let me say, of course, that as we go through this, this law of God, this moral law, it brings us under conviction of sin. It has to. If we, come, if we come to the end of one of these sermons and you, you walk away and you say, you're like the rich young ruler, all these things I've done for my youth. Uh, sin has clouded your vision and you are blind and you have not actually received the totality and the completeness of God's law. We need to be brought under conviction of these things in order to throw us into the arms of Christ, whether for the first time or whether for the hundredth. But that is part or the millionth. But that is part of the work, you see, as we are Christians still in the life, in the the body of sin, that we are continually repenting of sin. And we are continually coming to Christ in faith. Well, this is the seventh commandment. And I have just, I've tried as much as I can, children. It's just three little uh, words. Adultery, fornication, lust. Adultery, fornication, lust. First of all, adultery. So, and by the way, I should say, these are kind of the degrees. You know, if you're a lawyer or studying law, you know that, uh, there are, that uh, crime has sometimes a first degree and a second degree and that sort of thing. At least American law does. I think it does here. And the first degree, the thing in its purity and its greatest height is adultery. And that's why it's our first point. Let's again remind ourselves what God's plan is for mankind in Genesis 1. I read it this morning for that purpose, among others, uh, in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So the idea of creating man and woman in this world as he, he wishes to have a populated world. We don't need to listen to those who say overpopulation is about to kill us all or something like that. God knows what he's doing. He wishes the whole world to be populated. And I could take you to a drive on many places and you would say we have not yet reached overpopulation. We don't all have to live in the same city. There are other places in this world for us to live and some of them have very, very few people. But that's the idea, that's the purpose that God has. And how, are he, how is he going to do it? What are the means by which he's going to do it? Genesis 2.20. Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up this flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Well, isn't it interesting that God allowed Adam to feel the, the want and the need of something he didn't have for a moment, a reminder that sometimes how God deals with us in order that we might treasure what we end up having all the more. But his provision for him was to create a woman, not exactly the same, a helper comparable to him, so in uh, far more similar than any of these, uh, these animals, of course, that, that he had looked at just for the purpose of seeing that they certainly were not suitable to be his helper, but on the other hand, different. God designed them to be different precisely so they could be and so that they would want to be joined together. That is the beautiful thing about being different is that it creates the possibility of a wonderful union. And the stronger the the differences, the more the tighter the union. Uh, We can see this even, take, take the example of magnets. If you take two magnets polarized and put the same way, right, the same polarization, that does nothing. There's no attraction there at all. They're the same. But if, on the other hand, you have two strong magnets, opposite poles, wow, did they, they ever attract. That's the idea. Not of opposites of attract. Sometimes we hear that in terms of personality. That's not what is meant. But those things that are different in the way God designed men and women to be different, 
They both attract and they also create the possibility of lasting union. Well, more that could be said about that. But that was God's provision. He wants to fill the earth. He's going to do it through marriage. And marriage, you see, is a a union, as I said. Notice that word, one flesh. They become one flesh. So there is this permanent union between man and woman from which then uh, new life proceeds. It's a union and it's also a covenant. That's why we take vows. It is absolutely a a covenant relationship between man and woman, not to be broken. Um, Just, again, to be reminded, in the day of such permissive divorce, God God hates divorce. And uh, I I will marry any two members of this church or members of other good churches that are are here for a time. I'll even marry two unbelievers. But the one thing is that they have to understand that there is no such thing as divorce, that marriage is for life. And we must understand that that is God's design. It's a covenant for life. That's why we take vows. So what then is prohibited in this this commandment? Well, obviously, is adultery. And adultery, we have to get these two words settled in our minds, adultery and fornication. Uh, adultery has to do with any defilement of that covenant relationship of marriage. And Matthew Henry says, This is put before the sixth commandment by our Savior in Mark 10:19. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, for our chastity. He, he mentions the, the order that the Lord picks, do not commit adultery, do not kill. He says, For our chastity should be as dear to us as our lives, and we should be as much afraid of that which defiles the body as that which destroys it. And indeed, it was a matter of life and death in the Old Testament. Leviticus 20.10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, adulteress shall surely be put to death. A very, 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 very strong um, reaction from the Lord about those who defile this wonderful, lifelong covenant relationship. Now, there is a connection, you see, between the way um, they're, they're, the relationship between a man and woman and marriages and between God and his people. I didn't make this. This isn't a sermon illustration. This is God's own way of dealing, that there is a wonderful parallel between these things, particularly between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, right? That's the way we're called. We're going to go to the wedding. What, what, what else can we say about these invitations that we have? We just passed out a bunch of invitations. You know what we can call them? Well, they're like wedding invitations, aren't they? Because we're inviting people to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And if they receive that invitation and they come, they believe the words on it, well, then they're coming along with us to the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. Well, what does that mean? It means right now we are engaged. uh, We are already in union with Christ but we are furthermore engaged for that great wedding day. And therefore, we should be like a, cha- a chaste bride. And we should not be turned aside by other suitors. And we know that there are many spiritual suitors for our hearts. And so Jeremiah 3 says, The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hip mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. You see how the Lord deals with spiritual infidelity as we as people go after other gods after other idols he says i regard this as idolatry it is just like marital unfaithfulness now the only way for that parallel to be upheld is of course for us to take marriage itself very seriously and you see a willingness to sin in one area is of course very related to the other we must uphold the covenant relationship that God has established. Now that goes with the world. I said with idols, it also goes with the world as well. James 4, 3 says, You ask, meaning in prayer, you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And again, I'll address myself to the children and young people once again on this one. It may seem a harmless thing to you to wish to be in conformity to the world as much as possible. God doesn't see it that way, right? You, you say, well, I haven't gone off to a false religion. Good, wonderful, that's laudable. But in, in as much as we seek to conform ourselves to the world and to befriend the world in that way, he says we are adulterers and adulteresses. That's no minor thing. And therefore we should carefully consider any, any indication or any uh, tendency towards embracing this world. That should not be the, the heart of the Christian. Not how close can I be to the world, but rather to say, actually, my enemy is the world. And I cannot be friends with both God and the world. The Lord has said it's impossible. Well, anyhow, all that to say that we cannot think of adultery as in an isolated uh, instance. We have to think of it in the totality of fidelity to covenant relationships, primarily and finally with God spiritually, but also, of course, in terms of our husband or wife. And, the, and, and that relationship is utterly sacrosanct. And anything that would endanger it and any violation of it is in one way or another adultery. Well, secondly, then, fornication. Of course, I, uh, you, as I've mentioned, sexual Im- intimacy is reserved for marriage only. But fornication is any attempt to do otherwise. And I need not say that the world today thinks very little of doing this on a routine basis. They do it all the time. And so it was in the Corinthians and Paul's day. Let's not imagine that the sinners of today are so wonderful that we can, that they even have some credibility for being so imaginative and, and new and bold. They're not really. It's only in comparison with recent history. But if you go back to ancient history, well, of course, these things have been there from the very beginning. As it was in Corinth, a place noted for its immorality. Well, this is the saying that was going on, not in Corinth as a whole in the world. That wasn't what they were reading in the newspapers, but what was going circulating within the Corinthian church. Imagine this. Foods, this is 1 Corinthians 6.13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. All right, that's a little proverb that they were saying as they would wink at sin having to do with fornication. They would, uh, one would maybe let known to the other what they had done, and they'd say, well, food for the body and body for food, meaning it's just a bodily situation, so who really cares? It's not spiritual in nature, so they claim. And the response from Paul is very strong, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, because that's the heart of these things, is that God wants all of us, not part of us, all of us, and all of us belong to the Lord. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That's a different way of, let's put that proverb on its head. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Let's not forget the bodily resurrection. One of the great problems of thinking only in spiritual terms and ethereal terms is that we forget that God cares about our body as well as our soul. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, that means a prostitute, by the way, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. That's the answer. Flee it. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And it tells you the nature of sexual immorality as it reaches deeper because it has to do with our own bodies. Well, the answer to these things is to flee it. We should flee fornication. One great example is certainly of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, you know, from Genesis 39. Yeah, I hope we all know that, that story, but... Here, here it is that this young man is being tempted and tempted in, in such a way that 
uh, would seem to be the ultimate kind of temptation. Someone actually in authority really over him, knowing, of course, that there will be consequences if he event- continues to decline, and there were consequences. And there didn't seem to be any consequences for him giving in. Yet, because of his godliness and being upheld by the Holy Spirit, he was able to flee. And that's exactly what he did. Now that fleeing came with consequences, but he'd be, he was willing to pay them. As our Uncle Morris reminds us, it's better to die than to sin. You know, where I'm going in, in the, the Marine Special Operations Command, they, they always say it's, it, it's better to die than to quit. Well, for us, it's better to, to die than to sin. We don't give in to these temptations. We flee sexual immorality. Now, of course, we know that he, as I say, he paid for that decision by being thrown into prison unjustly. But, you know, he didn't sin against God. And God was able in in the end to rescue him. And that's the beautiful picture of of Joseph uh, in that though he was buried once and plucked out of that and though he was thrown into prison, The Lord was able to rescue him from that situation and how thankful we are that God is able to do the same with us. Now let me just say under this heading certainly is sodomy. I'll say more about homosexuality in the application, but we'll we'll just be clear even here in the doctrine that Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. It is surely a sin. So it is adultery itself, it is fornication, which is any kind of sexual uncleanness, and thirdly, it is lust, because I mentioned it's not only the act itself, but everything that is associated with it. And so things that are not actual acts also come under the righteous requirement of God's perfect law in the seventh commandment. And that includes particularly thinking and looking. Words and deeds spring from things that are in our heart. No one immediately commits adultery. It doesn't happen that way. It happens from things that first arise in our heart, which is why we must guard our hearts and how we pray for all, everyone, I, I say particularly the young people, but for everyone in this congregation, we pray for one another that our hearts would be guarded and kept tight like a fortress against such thoughts entering our mind. Well, we know that the, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount kind of contains the expansion of all these things and helps us to understand them in their totality and Matthew 5.27 says, you've heard it said that uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Well, we certainly have heard that. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let me just say this for a moment. We don't think so much about our thoughts, but God thinks about them. God, you see, in his perfection, in the totality of his power, when he thinks of something, it comes to be. You have to understand that all of reality that has ever been or shall ever be existed first in the mind of God, right? His his sovereignty is so perfect and nothing escapes. No sparrow falls to the ground apart from his hand. And Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And so every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle in this world has its precise ordering at any one time. We may not know where those subatomic particles are, but he does precisely according to what was first in his mind from all of eternity. And so there is reality in his mind. He thinks something, and soon enough it happens, if not instantaneously. Now, what about us? We say, well, thankfully that's not the case. Yes, thankfully. Or is it? Or is there a reason why life coaches and people who speak at seminars are so, so big on positive thinking and being visionary? There's a reason for that, you know. If you think enough about something and you make plans according to that, eventually those things actually come to be because God has made us in his image. Now, they don't happen like this because we don't have his power, thankfully. But actually, everything that we ultimately do in this world first happened in our minds. And therefore, we must be very careful to have good thoughts and thoughts that lead to to righteousness and purity rather than to sin. And we should guard our, our hearts. 
That's why Job said, and what's, what is the, the, the window into the mind? Well, it's the senses. And, and so Job says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then I, should I look upon a young woman? And, and this is uh, a man who is not young, but he rightly makes a covenant. I love that language, with his eyes, that he will not look upon a young woman to lust after her. Well, I need not say that this is a tremendous area. I'll mention this again in the, appli- in the application, but in our day of electronic media, uh, all sorts of filth is all too readily available, uh, and we should take every step necessary to make sure that such things do not reach us. We need to make a covenant with our eyes, and we need to make a covenant and or uh, very hard decisions regarding our electronic media to make sure these things do not reach us. Now, because thinking and looking matter to God. Now look, again, if, if you may not think that looking means anything, you may not think that thinking means anything, but God has said very clearly that he thinks about these things, and it matters to him. Therefore, clothing matters to, to God. That was, of course, the great immediate concern of both Adam and Eve in the aftermath of the fall. What was their problem? The thing that they first noticed was the fact that they were naked and needed to be clothed. They were hiding from the Lord. The eyes of them were both open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Well, for the very first time in the fall, men and women knew that there needed to be some barrier, even between themselves as a married couple. Isn't that an amazing thing that sin had destroyed the beautiful thing that God had made. Well, the fig leaves didn't work very well, and God provided a more adequate and good covering for them. In Genesis 3.21, Adam uh, and his wife, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This, as far as we know, is the first death of an animal. There, because of sin, God killed some animal, shed the blood, probably for the first time, in order to clothe his sinful children. And friends, wasn't that the case then? And all those lambs and all those bulls, which the priest on God's behalf put to death in order to clothe his sinful children who needed to be clothed from uh, their sin and needed to be made righteous in their sight. And even more so, as he put to death his only begotten son in order that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Such amazing grace, such amazing generosity, who can tell? Well, anyways, returning to this thought, God actually cares very much and from the very beginning made provision for there to be decent clothing of both men and women from the very beginning and made sure it wasn't. He knew that the fig leaves weren't going to work very well for that purpose, and he did better. And so he always cares. And 1 Timothy 2.9 says this, In like manner also women ought to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And again, what we're talking about is what goes first. Our first concern cannot be our external appearance, And it it speaks particularly to to women, but men, of course, we fall into this sometimes as well, particularly in our day, but rather godliness. What the Lord cares about is our works, the things that we say and we do, and that should be the thing that we care most about. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give attention to our appearance. Actually, we should. We know that one of the things about the demoniac is he didn't take care of himself, and he wasn't clothed and in his right mind, right? Right? And we, and it is, and in fact, the Lord says, for those even in the midst of fasting should anoint, that is, put some hair products in their hair uh, in order to, to look groomed in the midst of their religious duties of fasting. So, of course, we should give some attention uh, to our personal appearance, but it should never, ever outshadow or take priority over other things, particularly the things of the Lord. And in all these things, the, the thing particularly, as we're in the, the great rubric and it's huge of this commandment, has to do with modesty and moderation. Um, now, especially, again, girls and women, um, it may not matter to you, 
and uh, but you understand that you have a responsibility to help to love your brother as yourself and those in this congregation and those uh, also in other places that you should uh, dress modestly, beautifully, femininely, absolutely. I hope all of you dress as beautifully as, as you know how and in wonderful feminine ways, but modestly in ways that will not provoke the lust of, of, of men and young men. So that's clothing. Also speaking, Ephesians 5, 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. That's the thing. There is such a thing as filthiness. There is such a thing as foolish talking and coarse jesting. And we should not at all engage in these things. I won't belabor the point because I don't think we struggle particularly with it, but I know that we hear it. And we should pray that the Lord gives us courage to make known our displeasure uh, when these things happen in our workplace and um, and in our schools. But in general, in all these things, make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Because all these things have to do with provision. Right? Again, you go on a journey and you make provisions in order to make it to the end. We call food and other things like that provision. Because it's what's going to enable us to get to that destination. Well, likewise, if the end of all these things is sinning in, in, this, in this seventh commandment sort of way, there are provisions that get you from A to B. And we should get rid of all those provisions. Make no provision whatsoever that will even allow these things to be. Uh, to give an example in dress. Instead of having to face the temptation of, I've got two clean dresses, one of them is, is immodest and the other one's modest, well, get rid of the immodest dress. Um, the obvious again for, for men. All right, I don't, uh, you know, uh, this pornographic thing is a temptation to me. Well, get rid of the provision for it. Uh, it's not easy. I recognize that very difficult uh, choices have to be made. But again, the Lord says, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, that's the way the Lord considers sin. And therefore, we should make no provision for these things. And deal with them very directly. Okay, so that's it. Those three points. Adultery, fornication, lust. Now, duties required. This is in the application. As if we haven't already been there, but uh, all these things kind of come together. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Uh, The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. Let me just stop there. That the positive thing has to do with clean, clean, if if uncleanness is what we're avoiding, um, purity is what we're seeking. The commandment, the positive commandment is to be pure in our thinking, to be pure in every aspect of us. And the preservation of it in ourselves and others. And so we seek to preserve purity in others. Watchfulness over the eyes and over all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company is so important. I was just speaking with, the, with my children this day on the issue of company and, and look, none of us are ever, ever above that. We always reflect the company that we keep, whether we want it to be that way or not. And so we have to pray, and particularly those, as I think, as I, I enter into some of your worlds, Instead of being with godly men all the day to, to be with ungodly men, uh, I have more sympathy and I pray for you more and you can pray for me more. That is, in as much as we have to be around uh, those of, of very other persuasions that the Lord would, would help us and would enable us uh, to, to maintain purity in our thinking. Well, um, temperance, keeping, our, keeping chaste company, modesty and apparel, Reminder again, Proverbs 7.10, there is a, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot. And the question is, what is that? What is an attire of a harlot? The answer is there is such a thing. Um, and we should be careful uh, not to approximate that. And I already mentioned 1 Timothy 2. Marriage by those who have not the gift of count, uh, continency, conjugal love, 
um, is part of the uh, these things are, are um, the positive commands again of this of the seventh commandment um, that are good and right in the sight of God. Um, diligent labor in our callings and shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. These are all the things related to the preservation of purity in ourselves and others. Now, on the other hand, secondly, we come to sins forbidden. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, as we also said, rape, incest, Sodomy and all unnatural lusts also have a special application for that coming up next. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto. That's it. Corrupt or filthy communications. Now, they didn't, of course, when this was written, they didn't have the media, but that's precisely what it's talking about, even then. There have always been some sort of pornographic communications, whether written or in plays or shows or other things like that, and it is forbidden in this commandment. It is a scourge, of course, in our day because of the availability of electronic media everywhere. As I say, flee it, do whatever it takes, don't go near it. Um, Other consequences that must be borne in your life, so let it be. Uh, unfortunately, I've, I've heard some very dire statistics about the typical evangelical church and the enormous percentage of men who are affected by it. And so we need not imagine that uh, there is no such thing as a struggle in this church. Uh, rather, we should take every measure to make sure that it, it does not become a scourge. We pray one for another in these things. Wanton looks... Again, that's part of the responsibility that we have towards one uh, and another. Impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews and resorting to them, that's concubines, those who are not your wife. Entangling vows of single life. Believe it or not, that's something prohibited by this. All right, the Catholics in their, their willingness to make a new law and to dispense with the law of God, they're such wonderful Pharisees, they decide, well, we're going to be super religious and we're going to forbid the priests from marrying. Well, that, how has that worked out? Is that a good idea? Absolutely not. They, they've broken God's law merely in taking these entangling vows of singleness when they need not have. God gave a provision for them in marriage and they didn't want to receive it. Well... They receive, of course, everything that comes along with it. Every time we decide that we know better than God and want to make some law that is different than his, it comes with consequences. And undue delay of marriage. And friends, can I speak? Will you, for, for you allow an American to speak very forthrightly to you on this one? This culture does not do this right. Okay? The average age of marriage is about 53. No, I'm kidding. But it's... it's it's a little bit too old, all right? It has gotten higher and higher and higher and higher. And you would have to be the most super saint that the world has ever known to make it to the, age, the average age, having not fallen, um, you know, if uh, in ordinary situations. I mean, we praise God, don't we, for those who have been kept because God has, has in, in your circumstances, called you to be single, at least for the time. We praise God for that wonderful Example to the world of, of holy living. Uh, but ordinarily, that's just not going to work, and that's not God's design for it at all. And uh, we can have wonderful, uh, again, we want our children to serve usefully in vocations, but ordinarily, uh, God's design is that they be married, and that shouldn't take forever. It should not be first this and that and the other and the other and the other. And once I've done a full career, and I have about who know, 100,000 pounds in the bank, then maybe I'll think about getting married. No. We can do weddings on the cheap. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be expensive. Uh, I, work, I work for free. Uh, we, could, we could make it happen. Uh, it's, it's not a problem. So please, let us not fall into the culture on that one because it is not helpful at all to our society or to our church. Now, um, I'm, I'm thankful that there are some very good examples as well uh, on the other end of that spectrum. Of course, we want our children to be adults and, and able to uh, rightly make decisions and to, uh, to engage in the high responsibilities of marriage, so it can't be too early. 
um, but we want to, to do things God's way rather than the world's way. Uh, idleness. Idleness is part of the sins prohibited in this commandment. How does that go? Idleness, how? Well, Second Samuel 11 tells us a story. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Well, that's the fruit of idleness, you see. It wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't. Had he been out to battle doing the things that he was supposed to be doing as king, it wouldn't have happened. And that's why our elders and betters of another generation said that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now, we should not be slaving away for no end. That's ungodly as well. But serving in our vocations, the things that God has called us to, to work six days, not to slave six days, but to work a solid six days and to get sufficient rest and all the rest of it, that lends itself to godliness. And when we decide to break God's uh, commandment in that one, God's fifth commandment, other things happen, all right? And, and one of the great problems is precisely that idleness leads to sexual immorality, and we must not engage in that. Gluttony, drunkenness, I need not say that those things turn to sexual immorality, uh, drunkenness in particular. Unchaste company, I've already mentioned that. Lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. Well, those are the, the duties and the sins forbidden. Thirdly, let me just speak on homosexuality because we need to be very clear. Our culture isn't. But the Bible is very clear about this. Romans one twenty five says, Those who exchange the truth of God for the lie... And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Of course, homosexuality is a sin. Like anything else that other than a marriage between one man and one woman. But what is unique about it is that it is also a judgment upon sin. God gives them up to this debased behavior as indeed a, a, a picture indeed of the wrath yet to come. It is a shameful thing. And it is not something at all to be celebrated. What is our attitude though to those who engage in it in this world? Well, we love our neighbor as ourself. That is very, very, very clear. And uh, if, in fact, we have any particular um, distaste and we, we might for their lifestyle, we must seek as much as possible to love them in spite of these things because sin is distasteful to God. Um, and we know that ourselves and our, and our uh, unrighteousness we have made ourselves odious to God, yet he loved us while we were yet sinners. And let me say that there is no one beyond the reach of salvation. Even if, in fact, God has for the time given them over to these things, there are many examples of those whom he's also rescued from the very worst of the depths of depravity. And so, therefore, we should speak the truth in love to them. And as much as God gives us relationships with him, um, we do not uh, speak in anger to them or hatred or fear, but rather of love, telling them the truth. And there are, believe it or not, there are those who have been in this lifestyle and God has rescued. I know one who's a minister in the PCA. And he pleaded with the PCA as the, the progressives were, were trying to make some sort of thing that would um, uh, limit how clearly we spoke on the issue and try to keep us from making a statement on it. He said, no, brothers, no. Only, if only people had been clear with me. Finally, some, one of you did. One of you spoke the truth in love. One of you PCA ministers. And that's what the Lord used to bring me out of this. The world is speaking lies to them because he doesn't love them at all. But we need to love them all the more and particularly to speak the truth in love to them. 
Well, that's homosexuality. Thirdly, gender bending. I don't know what else to call it. Um, but as the world is in utter free fall with regard to its cultural Christianity, and particularly this, this one, uh, it, it does not uphold any notion of God's design for men and women. And let me say in, in Genesis 1.27 again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. How is it possible that God, who has one image, is able to, to bestow his image in different ways on men and women? I'm not 100% sure. I, I look forward to having that further explicated. But there is some aspect of God's triunity. I know this much. A God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as one God that that can't be imaged in just one gender. And rather he makes then two equal but distinct uh, types of human beings, men and women. Now, the most overt form of this gender bending is, of course, transsexuality. Uh, transsexuals who attempt to make themselves into the other, the other gender and, and that or, or sex. And even those words seem to be up for, for grabs and I, I don't mean to define them here. But the point is, God has made men and women. God has. We haven't. And it's not up to us to make such decisions. Um, God, in his wisdom, has granted every, various aspects of our identity. Now, if it's sin, we should repent of it. If it's godliness, we should seek after it. But if God has made you a man, then you embrace that. And if God has made you a woman, then you embrace that as well. Because God is good in making us as he has chosen now, there are far more subtle forms than, than transsexuality that have been going on for years that have actually laid the foundation for these things, far more commonplace, in which the culture wants men to be like women and women to be like men. That is the reality. And that is why, friends, since the 1960s, the church, the evangelical church, has been fighting issues regarding women's roles in the church. Uh, why? Because this, the culture outside says that men and women should be exactly the same. And when we say that there is a point at which we can go no further, we, that, you know, and specifically the issue of, of who is called to preach and to teach and to exercise authority, then, of course, the culture is going to fight against that. We'll push back. And even within the church, there will be debates of those who are compromised with worldly thinking and those who wish to be in accordance with the Bible. And they will be in conflict. Of course they will. But, friends, it goes well beyond that. Right? It's not just coming up to this one little point in which if we, this one line, you know, that's the one thing we cross. It's the whole heart beyond it. Right? It's the idea, do we embrace God's plan for men and women generally? And the more we do, the more we embrace every part of God's plan, the more we are blessed. Right? So all the moves in the, the larger Presbyterian denominations, the moves in the free church, the moves in the PCA, so forth, have to do with what can we, you know, have women to do that they didn't used to do, but now we want them to do, that don't actually require them to be ordained. But friends, that's not the direction we need to go. All right, the direction we need to go is to embrace that beautiful, wonderful distinction. God, it can't be any clearer about this. Let's be clear. Let me just say first. Timothy 2:11 Let a woman learn in silence with all submission and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man to be in silence. It doesn't it's not actually addressing ordination. It's talking about the function of teaching in the church or of having authority and in those functions are for men rather than women. Now the world says that's horrible. God says that's his beautiful plan for us and we submit to his wisdom in that. And again, why would, you, why, why would we want to exchange these things anyways? Women have many unique privileges. And God has made us both good and beautiful as, as men and women. And the more we embrace it, the more beautiful and lovely we are indeed. All right? Um, that's, that's a sad thing as the world does it. It not only destroys things, it makes them ugly. There's an author who... One said, yes, I know women can fight in wars, but it's ugly when they do. Wars are ugly. And, and there's a reality to that. It's not just about wars. It's about all the, the totality of what we are in men and women. It has not to do with basic bare ability to do it. Because, of course, women uh, can do just about anything that a man can do because he's, she's the, the comparable helper, right? Made much like man. 
The issue has to do with the beautiful distinction of role that God has given so that they're complementary. They don't do the same thing. And the more that those things are realized, the more beauty, the more real the union, and the more uh, validity. Look, even for the angels. Do you know that? Do you know that that's part of the, the, the text in Corinthians? Uh, speaking of, uh, I won't get into the, the nature of head coverings or whether it's an external covering or whether it's just long hair, but there is a distinction. You should look down and in some way or another tell the difference between what, what a man looks like here and what a woman looks like here because of the angels. Isn't that an interesting thing? God believes that these things are beautiful and right, and so should we. Fifthly and finally, remember that Christ came to save sexually immoral people just like us. All right? So if you haven't heard something today that you have fallen afoul of, something that has brought you into conviction again, you are blind. I certainly have heard things that remind me of my failings. Beloved, Christ came to save sinners just like us sexually immoral people and understanding that totality of the seventh commandment and all the things that come under that heading to save people like us. What a savior. We can save the very worst of sinners. Now I pray that we'd all embrace him all the tighter and all the more dear love and thankfulness as we consider that. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you are good to us in showing us our sin. Lord, we think even of this poor man who lived in in such dreadful sin and depravity for so long, and somebody finally told him the truth. Lord, we're thankful that you speak to us the truth and love, and you call us to repent of our sins, and how we pray that we would. Lord, what is more, you make wonderful provision for our salvation. And now we pray that we would further, having repented to receive Christ in faith and receive this wonderful cleansing fountain, true waters of baptism, which we might be cleansed from all of our sin and rather clothed with Christ's righteousness. And Lord, we pray for that, not only for our continued growth and holiness, also for that final day in which we will be made perfect in holiness in that eternal wedding feast where we shall forever be with our beloved and he with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.